um, when he left, again, things changed uh, abruptly. Uh, he said, what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. What happened, because of the influence that had come into this church, they formally had embraced Paul, but then they started to distance themselves from him. Not only just from him, but distance themselves from one another. He also writes, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So what would, you say, what would you write to a church that has distanced themselves from you and is distancing themselves from one another? They are, in a metaphorical sense, chewing up one another and picking bits of each other from their teeth. What would you write to a church that has these kind of difficulties? And that's what we come to when we come to the opening of Paul's letter. Look what it says in Galatians 1. Verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. At the time when you wrote a letter like this, it's different from the way we do it when we put to whom it is addressed and then the body of the letter and then you sign your name at the end. And this time they indicated who was writing the letter in the very beginning. So Paul indicates that. And he indicates those to whom this letter is addressed. And he identifies the Christians in this particular locale, which is something Paul doesn't do oftentimes. But he identifies these are the ones to whom the, the Christians and the churches that are meeting together in, again, what is presently a, a, a portion of modern day Turkey. Uh, at the point, what usually happened at this point is having identified himself and those to whom he is writing and a brief greeting, he thanks them and then prays for them. And that's not what we find. Look what it says in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The absence of any thanksgiving is kind of surprising. Instead of a thanksgiving for the reader's faith, we find him rebuking them and intimating that they are rejecting the faith, defecting for the faith. They had exchanged belief in the gospel for belief in what Paul calls another gospel, but it's really not another gospel. There's two Greek words for another, another of the same kind and another of a different kind. The individuals who are expressing a different message 
to the Galatians are saying, no, 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 Paul said this, we're saying this, same thing. It's another of the same kind of thing. Well, Paul says, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. And although the Galatians were confused about what is the gospel, Paul was not confused at all. And what he understood, there's a difference between the gospel and everything else. And what does gospel mean anyways? We hear that a lot. Different churches have all kinds of different messages. What is the gospel? The the word gospel literally means good news. When Jesus lived on the earth, the Roman Empire dispatched messengers to bring good news to the citizens of the Roman Empire. And this herald brought this news, and this news that he brought was good news. It was called gospel. So he would talk about a benefit of being in the Roman Empire. Empire and this herald would go and he would announce this benefit and, and he would herald, hey, you gotta to listen to what this guy says, that this guy from the emperor and he's, and he's giving us some gospel. Gospel? Gee, that's great news. He usually was good news. And then you'd, you'd go because you want to hear good news. You want to hear good news. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be. Good news. Good news. And so when you come from churches, you get truth, but what there is supposed to be over a period of time, it should feel like good news. It should feel like good news. You should be able to leave, again, not every week, but with a general sense of, oh, good. And why isn't that the experience? Well, maybe that, or maybe that has not been your experience. There's a lot of different teachings. What is gospel? Um, Paul saw himself as one of the messengers God set apart in a particular way to clearly bring what the gospel is. And God identified some individuals who are particularly sent to different individuals who inhabit the planet. God had previously, before Christ, been dealing fairly exclusively with the Jews. Then what happened? Jesus came to open up a message through Jews to the world. And the initial missionaries to us Gentiles were Jews. And the apostle, the one sent to tell us about the message, is Paul. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so what we are to understand then when Jesus identified Paul, knocked him off his donkey, and, yeah, okay, onto his donkey, okay, yeah. Um, He did so, so that we would understand the news that God is wanting us to hear. Paul identified himself, that was his mission, to hear what God wanted to say to Gentiles and to express it. The good thing about Paul is that as a Pharisee, he was pulled deeply into Judaism. And why would God send a person steeped in Judaism and have them be the apostle to Gentiles? That's a good question, isn't it? The thing about Paul, he was so pulled into Judaism that when he was released to bring the good news, he didn't include a lot of the things that 
others might have included. He understood the difference between the message that he understood as a Jew believing in the Old Testament and the message that Jesus gave him to present. And Paul would, and we'll see, identify that there are some differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We're not saying that the Old Covenant is bad. We're not saying that it shouldn't be there. We don't want to rip it out of our Bibles. Don't do that. But it has a message that we are to regard, but the message of the New Testament and the New Covenant is different, and we have to understand the difference. What we're going to find is this is what is happening to these individuals in Galatia. It's getting mixed up. What do we have to do? Do we have to do the things that the Old Testament tells us to do? How many of them? We, we don't kill bulls, and do we have to do that anymore? And, well, if we don't have to do that, do we have to tithe? That was part of the old thing. Do we still have to do that? And You know, there was different things. We, you know, we, we understand we don't have to sh- shave this part of our head or don this kind of garment. There's a lot of things. But, so that's what Paul was really good at, understanding the message. And that's what he comes to do. And this is why he writes this letter to the Galatians. Um, those who spoke for God didn't always have good news. You read the Old Testament and it's not full of good news. Sprinkled with the dire predictions, though are promises in the Old Testament of better days ahead. Isaiah says the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He understands is that during the period before Christ, there's going to be some difficult things, but what was to happen is God would send one with good news who would wipe tears from faces. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you. I bet you know this verse. A lot of us really like this verse. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The better days ahead culminated in God sending his son to the earth like a king who sends his son to an embattled part of the kingdom to restore truth and justice. God promised to send his son to the earth. Such a king who mercifully decides to send his son would, again, dispatch Harold to announce, Hey, hey, the king's son is on the way. Help is on the way. And that's the way we are to understand Jesus coming. And Paul, as one of his apostles, tells us what the good news is. Um, Paul's problem is that these individuals who embraced the good news, they turned from it. They went from embracing it to letting go of it. And what Paul understands, because he sees clearly the reason why they turned in their attitude towards him, is that they let go of the gospel in order to grab another gospel, which wasn't really the gospel. And the reason that they turned against one another is because they let go of the gospel and grabbed on to another message, which was not the gospel. Now, when they embraced this other message, they had no idea what the byproduct of letting go of the good news would be. When they first heard the good news, they believed that they were accepted by God through faith in Christ, period. Period. There's no buts, no ands. You are accepted through faith in Christ. Yeah, well, we surely we need to be circumcised. No, you don't. Surely we need to avoid these. No, you don't. We, well, at least we need to do this festival. And the, No, you don't. They say, you mean we're just accepted? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying it's a done deal and we're just accepted? 
And what they did, they believed that. And then what that ushered in is, well, that's good news. <laughs> that's good news. And what happened? They embraced Paul and they embraced one another and love and all kinds of positive things. Then individuals came into the church that Paul's going to talk about as being agitators and they, they came in with this kind of message. I know that you have understood who Jesus is and good for you and you have embraced faith in Christ and that's a good thing and God accepts you, right? But he'll accept you even more if you get circumcised. And he'll accept you even more if you do the festivals and the holy days. And he'll accept you even more. And what they ended up saying was, okay, I'll buy. And so what they did, they fell for the gospel of Jesus plus. And what do you imagine happened? Something that did not accompany their faith in the real gospel, the gospel of Jesus plus, they started to compare themselves with one another. And rather than support one another, they began to kind of stand alongside one another because they didn't feel as secure as they did. And when you don't feel secure, you start to compare yourself. Well, I might not be all this, but at least I'm not doing that. And they began to bite and devour. Things began to divide. They turned against Paul and they turned against one another. And this had happened pretty quickly. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is writing within probably a year or so, a year or so of his evangelizing and spreading the good news in this area, and they have already turned. It seemed to him, and part of the quickly deserting, do you remember what happened when God gave the old covenant to the Israelites through Moses, and he was up on the Mount Sinai for a period of time, and they were tapping their feet and and wondering, when is he going to come? And, and what they ended up doing then is quickly within a month and a half of hearing the covenant, building the golden calf. And Paul likens it to something like that. What are you doing? You've just, you understood what God said. Why are you turning and embracing a different message? I'd like to read an article with you. Again, there's two articles. I'm only going to read one. And because this might seem like they were really stupid, that it's really, really easy to understand the difference between what is and what is not the gospel. It is not easy. And what we're going to find as we work our way through this letter is we might find ourselves thinking, oh, I can't believe, why in the world could... It's so simple, isn't it? You just ask Jesus into your heart, right? That's all you do. And it is simple. But it's very difficult to keep it simple. That's what they found. And it wasn't that they looked for individuals to confuse them. Individuals looked for them. And the problem is, with Christianity, you need two things. The first one's pretty easy. You need a good yes. Say that to me. Yes. Yes is pretty easy to say. Do you believe that Jesus is God? 
Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Do you believe that, that Jesus will love you more if you pray more in the morning? What? Wait. I mean, certainly, well, certainly he would love you more if you gave a percent or two more than you're giving. What? See, but, but then if you go to different places, are you going to hear different things? Yeah. What's the truth? I mean, isn't it dangerous to believe that God accepts me and I don't have to do anything about it? What would keep me from not obeying Him? Good question. I think it is a good question. It's not simple. I'm going to read through this article. And again, for some of you, it's a little bit... You say, Mike, I have no idea what you're talking about. The reason why I'm going to read through this, it's the one for Ephesians 3, 7 through 9. I might call attention to a few things and we might talk more about, but I just want to give us an image of the fact that there are some confusing things about the Bible. And we tend to sweep them under a rug. Let's not do that. Let's read this thing. Okay. What is the gospel in Ephesians 3, 7 to 9? From A Place for Grace, this devotional thing that I've written. What is the gospel and why do we need to believe it? Paul writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. There he is the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this, there's a word, mystery. That's a, that's a, that's a word we're going to talk about. Mystery, and, we'll, and I think I'll, I'll describe it in the, in the article. I'll just keep going. Which for ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. A casual reading of the Bible reveals a God who seems to be somewhat schizophrenic, Harsh and unyielding in some places, gentle in others. The good news is that these apparent mood swings are really illusions, the result of mystery. In the Bible, a mystery, this is important, is a concealed truth. A concealed truth. When we talk about mystery, we think about something difficult to discover. There are some good movies um, where a good mystery, you follow the plot, and then it takes a turn, and then it's a mystery. I, I had no idea that's coming. I love the usual suspects. It's with this guy, Sizer Cozy, right? Is that right? Sizer Cozy. Anyway, it's a really good thing. You, you have no idea what's going to happen at the end, and then this thing turns it, and that's a mystery. It's difficult to discover. Biblically, a mystery isn't difficult to discover. It's impossible to discover until it's revealed. That's mystery. It's kept hidden. It's impossible to discover until it is revealed. And Paul talks about what he came to do is to unveil something that was hidden. It's not that people saw it and didn't say anything. God showed something to Paul that had never been seen by prophets and, and people that came before. It was a new thing that Paul ended up knowing the Bible as much as he did, said, I 
he had memorized the Old Testament and the writings about it and what people said about it. He said, I had no idea that was in there. What was he talking about? What is the mystery? I'll tell you this, it changed his life. And it changed his message. A biblical mystery is when God intentionally shrouds an aspect of his character, giving the impression that he is something he is not. For instance, the Old Testament gives the impression that God welcomes Jews into relationship with himself, but distances everyone else. This is an an instance of mystery. Does God deal with the Jews specifically in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. And when you look in the Old Testament, are Gentiles his enemies, those who are excluded? They are. Is this God's deep heart to exclude Gentiles? See, that's what we know. It's a mystery. According to the Old Testament, you say, yeah. But then what Paul reveals is that God was shielding an aspect. God has always been inclusive. It just seemed like he was exclusive for a period of time. And then God unveiled this mystery. He is not just the God of Jews. He is and always will be the God of... But he. So then, yeah, let's keep on asking. Why would he do that? Why would he give the impression that he is something that he is not? That's a good question, isn't it? When grace was given to Paul and the mystery was revealed, Paul understood that God's apparent disregard for Gentiles veiled a deeper commitment to welcome all mankind into his presence. The mystery, Paul writes, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The ability to see God's inclusive, eternal intentions was the defining moment of Paul's life, forever changing the way he viewed God, himself, and others. And again, I'm reading from the insert in the worship folder on Ephesians 3. goes on, The full answer to this question lies beyond the realm of our complete understanding within the eternal purposes of God. Suffice to say, God employs mystery to pave the way for the influence of the gospel. When received and believed, the gospel dispels the mystery-driven fog. Fear, obligation, and guilt that shrouds God's face. We cannot know God from the Old Testament alone. To draw an image of God simply from the Old Testament, exclusively from the Old Testament, we cannot know the face of God. We cannot know the face of God until it's revealed in Jesus Christ and until a new covenant supplants the old one. Again, this might sound simple, but it is not. It's easy to get confused. God used uses the administration of this mystery to foster transformation. By veiling and unveiling aspects of his character, God transforms our hearts. The gospel is the means by which we peer beneath the veil 
of mystery into the heart of God. Through the gospel, God removes the old covenant veil that temporarily obscured his new covenant love for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Paul became a servant of this gospel to make plain to everyone, particularly Gentiles, God's new covenant love. That's what Paul came to tell us. That the new covenant supplants the old covenant. God no longer blesses those who obey the commandments and curses those who don't. We are under a new covenant and that's what he wants us to see. Is that clearly seen everywhere in the Gentile church? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I think it's harder to understand the gospel than we might understand. Paul writes, in terms of the covenant, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. In the old covenant, parents and priests were responsible to put the law on the hearts of their kids. Talk about it when you sit down, when you rise up. What God seems to be doing in the new covenant is assuming responsibility. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, it's not that we are, well, we are absolved of ultimate responsibility. God assumes responsibility. Why does he do that? Because the weight of responsibility is crushing, if you understand what he's asking. God assumes responsibility because what he wants to usher us into is a relationship with himself that requires that we understand you carry the heavy burden I don't that's why Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light because he understands that God carries the burden now we'll see Mike if if the burden is removed if I'm not going to fear God's judgment What is it that will propel me to obey? That's a good question. Would you agree? I mean, if judgment gets taken away, what's going to propel us to obey him? It seems like a great question until you remember that there is no fear in love, and perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And you cannot frighten somebody into loving. So if God wants to, compel or impel us to love, is he going to hang the fear of judgment over our heads? No! That's why he has to remove that. Because love is obedience. And you can't force that. So, uh, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness. It says, I will be Helios. I will be Helios. Helios is Greek, means gracious, favorable, benevolent, cheerful to their unrighteousnesses. And again, as we've seen, God doesn't, it's in what it indicates, we tend to think that when we sin, God goes, oh. And we're afraid of that. And what it seems to indicate here, God will be Helios, non-reactive to our unrighteousnesses, and he remembers our sins no more. Sin gets taken out of the way. 
Um, if we fail to understand the gospel's role in unveiling mystery, we come away from the Bible hopelessly confused. I want you to listen to me. And if this is kind of, you say, Mike, I don't get this. Just, this might be a part. Vainly trying to mesh old covenant. Again, the covenant is included within the Old Testament. It's the covenant from Mount Sinai. Vainly trying to mesh old covenant exclusion and new covenant inclusion fosters spiritual insecurity. I want to say that again. If you think God is a combination of old covenant exclusion and new covenant inclusion, it is not possible to be secure spiritually. And that insecurity will cause you to have issues with yourself and issues with one another. And that's what Paul, that's why Paul in this letter drives them back to the gospel because the security that the gospel brings ushers in love. The insecurity confusion brings ushers in the absence of love. Fear, comparison, I'm better than you, I'm better than I used to be. We become insecure. The failure to account for the fact that God veils aspects of his character in the Old Testament and unveils them in the New Testament increases fear and decreases love. Unless and until the message of the gospel unveils mystery, it is impossible to know God. Until and unless the new covenant unveils mystery, it is not possible to know God. The other gospel that the Galatians are attracted to is really not a gospel at all. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Um, There are some individuals who are coming in and they said, God loves you because of Jesus, right? And you say, God loves you because of Jesus. Yes, good, no, good, yes. They have a good yes. And what they didn't have was a good no. And God will love you even more if you get circumcised and if you do this and that. And the more in our day is not the more in their day. The more in their day was about Jewish things. The more in our day are not Jewish things, but it's still the same principle. If you believe that by giving more you can make God love you more, that's, you might have heard that somewhere and you probably said, well, I guess so. And that's where we need a good no. They had a good yes in Galatia, but they didn't cultivate a good no. Cultivate a good no. The new covenant is that acceptance is total. So what that means, you're going to have to learn to say, we learn, we're going to have to learn to say no. God will love you even more if you go to church three times on Sunday. What? See, you're going to have to say that. And you're going to have to say it sometimes to the Christian radio. And you're going to have to say it to Christian songs. And you're going to have to say it to some Christian books. Now, I'm not, you're not blowing up all, but, you have, but we have to have a good yes and a good no. And they didn't have a good no. And that's, that's a hard to have a good no. Hard. It takes time. Some people had come to Paul and were 
agitating the individuals and confusing things. Um, the problem is, too, you know one of the things that makes it kind of tricky? Before Christ came, it was only God versus Baal. You know, Baal is a skinny guy with a lightning rod. He doesn't look like God. Or God is Molech. And Molech was this Assyrian god who was in the form of like an incinerator. And he had arms that went up like this and a big mouth with a, with a fire inside. And so to worship Molech, he liked to, he liked to eat little kids. So what you do is you, they put little kids on that and they roll down into Molech's mouth. And that's not God. It, it was easy, easier in the Old Testament. God is not Molech, and God is not Baal, and God is not Ashtoreth, and those different gods and goddesses. In the New Testament, it's a little tricky. Because the confusion is God versus God. Which God is he? The God of the Old Testament or the God of the New? It's not God versus Molech. Is it the same God? To make an image of God, do you take old and new and mix it together? Is God an amalgam of old and new? Would you agree? This is not an easy question. Would you agree with me? This is not simple. Is God the God of the old covenant? Or is he the God of the new? You say he's the God of both. Not possible. It's not possible that he's the God of both. Those covenants cannot coexist. One is conditional and one is not. One says, if you, if you, if you, then I'll. There's a lot of you in the old covenant. In the new, it's I will, I will, I will, I will. You can't have the same thing. It's one or the other. And what the Galatians did, they heard both and said, well, yeah, okay, it must be one from column A and one from column B. And, and Paul says, I am so astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ to a gospel which really isn't another gospel. He was passionate about believing because he understood that believing the truth meant being able to love, be secure. And he saw what was happening. That's why he drives the belief issue, because it's the beliefs that are at the root of behaviors. It's beliefs that are at the root of behaviors. It's not easy. We look back and wonder how they could get so confused to see, to not understand it's a different gospel. It's very easy to get confused. Um, final passage. Paul didn't see old and new as two versions of the same thing. I'm going to deal with this very quickly. We're going to come back to this, so I'm not going to spend much time, but I'm just going to make one point about why it's so easy to get confused. It says in Galatians 3, and we'll get there when we get to this portion, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That's a good question, right? It's talking about the old covenant law. And they're asking him, 
okay, Paul, you're, you're vilifying the law. Is the, is the law bad? I mean, did God have a bad day and kind of forget who he was and wrote this? And No, look what it says. Surely not. For if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would indeed be by the law. So God didn't give the law to lead people to life. And this he goes, oh, well, what did he give it for? But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This version, the English standard version, it says the scripture imprisons everything under sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? The scripture imprisons everything under sin. Let me give you an image for imprison. Like say if you were to, to take a net and fish. I think there's still some fish in the, in, the, in the pond there. So okay, you take a net, right? This is the way they used to do it. They throw the net, and then it hits, and then it sinks. And then when it's sunk sufficiently, it's not really deep out there, so you don't have to let it sink really. But so then you, you pull it up, and then what ends up happening, the net closes. It closes on the fish, and you drag the fish. That's the image of imprisoned. It's the action of the net. What it's saying, God throws Scripture and nets people, and the scripture at the time is the Old Testament, and the Old Covenant specifically, and it says it nets people under sin. Nets people under sin. It makes sin a problem. In the New International Version, it, this is how it reads, the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. See, the English, the, the ESV, and he says, I don't get it, Mike. The NIV says the, the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Really what it's saying? Scripture nets people. It doesn't say people. It doesn't just say that people are netted. It nets people. Why would God do that? It goes on to talk about before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Let me tell you how it used to work and if we'll be done. What used to work back then is that there were tutors and there were teachers. So what the tutor would do is take the child and get the kid to school. And the tutors did not engage in dialogue. Would you like to go to school today, little Jacob? They did not do that. They were rough and they handled kids. And so the time that kids were 18 and then other custodians until 25, they drove the kids, kind of. They weren't nice. The father gave the care of the kids into the hands of these tutors who got them to school. Then, when the kid got to school, these tutors, there was even a room for them, for them to be able to hang out and smoke cigarettes and stuff like that. So they got the kids to school, and then their job was done because the job of the tutor wasn't to teach. It was to get the kid to the school so that the teacher could take over. The law is the tutor. 
But it's not the teacher. Jesus is the teacher. So the law gets us to Jesus so that we listen to Jesus' words and we see God through Jesus' eyes. That's what, that's what Paul is going to say in this letter. And what he will find is, I hope would be, that two things we would, two things we would happen. It would fortify our yes and would clarify our no. Devin, come on up. Uh, Father, thank you for um, message and the way you have configured it. You have veiled it in a way, then revealed it. And all the purposes for why you've done that, it's not entirely clear, but the fact that you have is clear, it seems. Would you help us to identify what you want us to believe and help us to cling to it? Would you give us good yeses and good noes? In Jesus' name, amen.